This is Jennifer Rosenfeld, and I help musicians create thriving businesses while balancing their creative work. And you're listening to the Inspiration Place podcast with Miriam Schulman. Today's episode is sponsored by The Artist Incubator. If you're wondering how to skyrocket your success as a professional artist, step by step, and if you're ready to start investing in your art career, you're in the right place. I've done it and I can show you how to do it too using the passion to profit framework. To learn more, go to shulmanart.com forward slash biz. That's B-I-Z. It's the Inspiration Place podcast with artist Miriam Shulman. Welcome to the Inspiration Place podcast, an art world insider podcast for artists by an artist, where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now, your host, Miriam Shulman. Well, hello, this is your host, artist Miriam Shulman, and you're listening to episode number 83 of the Inspiration Place podcast. I am so thrilled that you're here. Today, we're talking all about balancing your own creative practice with running a business. Even if it's a creative business, sometimes our own personal creative projects get pushed to the side. So in this episode, we're talking about how to reorganize your work structure in order to make space for pursuing big dream creative projects, how to create a business that works around that goal, and how to stop overworking so that you make time for creativity that will define your legacy. Before we dive in today's interview, I just wanted to let you know that Jennifer Rosenfeld, my guest, and I recorded this over a month ago before a lot of the shit hit the fan, so to speak, in terms of the coronavirus. However, what we are talking about is actually more important than ever. As you'll learn during today's episode, my guest Jennifer Rosenfeld helps musicians insulate their careers from the unexpected. She mostly works with performing musicians. The same is also true for what I do. I am really helping artists also insulate their careers from these bumps in the road. So if you are ready to create a new paradigm where you can work and hustle less and earn more money and have more time for your creative practice, we are here to help you. And we are more committed than ever to help you get through this time and come on the other side of it stronger and more successful than ever. This is possible. This is what I've done for myself. And this is what I help my clients create. The last few weeks have shown all of us that we as creative people, whether you're a musician or an artist, need to be the source of your own opportunities and income. Relying entirely on employment or gig offers is really risky, riskier than any of us thought. Here's the thing. It's not as though things were that great for musicians and artists before Corona. We always had to work hard and create our own opportunities. I don't want you to burn out. I don't want you to be stretched emotionally. I don't want you to have to schedule every minute to squeeze it all in. I want you to focus on what's most important so that you have time for your creativity, so you have time for your family, and most importantly, so that you make money. 
there is a better way. Whether you are a classical musician or an artist, we are here to help you. I want to remind you that I am still taking calls for people who want to learn how to profit from their passion. A strategy session is free with me for those who qualify. All you have to do is go to shulmanart.com forward slash biz, as in B-I-Z. I will help you map out the steps. If you're home right now, this may be the best time for you to really work on your career so that you won't have to be in this situation ever again. Okay, so I hope that you enjoy today's episode with Jennifer Rosenfeld. We're talking all about balancing your creative practice with running a business. But just so you know, all of this is very relevant My daughter, who I mention a lot in this episode, she's still getting her lessons over Skype, her cello lessons. And I know many parents who have not discontinued their children's music lessons throughout this crisis, and many parents who have not discontinued their children's art lessons throughout this crisis. If anything, people need art and music more than ever. This is what makes us feel good. This is what life is all about. And this is what makes life worth living. Okay, on to today's show. Today's guest helps high-level musicians create thriving businesses that support their dream creative life, just as she's done for herself as a musical theater writer and composer. A leading arts entrepreneurship educator and speaker, she's the co-author of Awakening Your Business Brain, an iCadenza guide to launching your music career. With a JD and MBA from Stanford Law School and Graduate School of Business, today's guest has consulted for and taught at institutions including Stanford, Peabody at John Hopkins, and the Frost School of Music at the University of Miami. Please welcome to the Inspiration Place, Jennifer Rosenfeld. Well, hey, Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Miriam. A lot of times I will have somebody on because either, you know, I want to get in front of their audience or whatever. And I have to confess that one of the main reasons I'm having you on is because I want to get my daughter listening to the podcast again. <laughs> awesome. So I had to do something related to music. So okay, yes. we'll make it happen. Right. And all her friends like so they can fangirl me too. Yes. Awesome. And you. Right. Both of us. Mostly you. Mostly you. No, both you of too. us. Okay. Right. Both of us. Because we're so awesome. <laughs> and also, it never hurts to be a friend of the podcast host. I have a lot of friends on. So Jennifer is somebody I know in real life. We've met through again, again, because people have been meeting a lot of my mastermind buddies. We met in Colombia and also in San Diego. And sadly, we won't be hanging out there again. But you come to New York? I will. Yes. I'll I'll be in New York this spring, actually. Oh, awesome. Okay, yes. we'll, we'll make some plans. So Jennifer coaches musicians. They're artists too, but everybody thinks they're a unique snowflower. Is that right? That's right. Absolutely. Okay. So that's why we have niches. But I mean, I do want to hear about your work. And I also want to hear about your musical that you're working on. Well, if you want, I can give a little background of how I got to this. I mean, you have some pretty impressive street credentials with this law degree. How did you Yeah, how did you get from there to here? That's a great question. I co-founded a business called iCadenza over 10 years ago. That was really the first thing I ever did after college. 
I co-founded it with a high school friend of mine named Julia. And that was sort of our first career when starting when we were 23 years old. So I spent about 10 years working with musicians on all kinds of career development, project development, mostly in the space of classical music, because that's my background. I never expected this path to work out, which is why I went to law school. That was the oh. original plan. And Julia is a musician? Like, how do you know Julia? Yeah, we met in high school choir and we collaborated together. I'm a pianist by background. Oh, wow. We always shared this love of classical music and wanted to be in the arts in some way and sort of carved our own way to be in this in this industry. Tell me then, who is the typical client who works with you? So just for people who don't have my whole biography memorized, or people who are new to the show, because I'm assuming you, your people are going to be listening to. So my daughter is a cello student at a very serious conservatory, the Hart School of Music in Connecticut. You know, whenever a parent says, my daughter plays the cello, you always, there's always the yeah, yeah, until you, do you know what I'm talking about? Like sometimes like, yeah, exactly. I get the no. yeah, yeah, until I tell them, no, actually. Yeah, she's legit. Right. Actually, actually, she's in a conservatory and they're like, she used the keyword. Right. So right? it's like the password. <laughs> so she's at the Hart School of Music and she is a music ed major. So I think unlike like a lot of the musicians you coach, you coach mostly performers. Is that right? It's a real mix. I mean, over the last 10 years or so, I've worked with so many musicians in different areas. I've worked with a lot of performers, some conductors, composers. Right now, I would say I work with a lot of folks who are educators in, in a very serious way. That might not be the entirety of what they do, but that is a key part of their career portfolio. And it's something that's very important to them and their mission. While I've worked on a lot of different projects with classical musicians, my focus right now is helping them really strengthen their income streams through teaching or coaching businesses so that they can have the time to work on a big dream creative project, which might be an artistic project or an educational project or to just have more time with their families and be able to work less. So I love working with educators. And I think nearly anyone who finds their way into a career in classical music has a real appreciation for education because this is a career path that requires so much training and so much of a the legacy of teachers and knowledge being passed down. So I love being around people who value that so much. One thing I get sometimes for those who don't know better, let's put it that way, like other, other well-meaning parents, like when, when I said, oh, Ty is going into music and they're like, oh, is that such a good idea? And, you know, they think it's, it's going to be such a hard path. But the truth is to be a music educator, the barriers of entry are so high to get to the point where you're qualified to do that, that it really is that the supply does not meet the demand. So that's why the placement rate is actually really especially if you go to a school like Hart or these other places that you've taught at Peabody or the Frost, like these top tier schools, it really is a viable career. Now, one thing you were sharing with me, Jennifer, when we met that sometimes these musicians, they find themselves in what they thought was their dream job, like they're in an orchestra, but then they feel stuck. Can you share a little bit about that? Because I think that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for any musician, classical musician who is very serious career bound, there have been a few career pathways that have been propped up as what success means. 
whether that's getting into an orchestra and getting tenure or becoming a university conservatory professor and becoming tenured or being a touring soloist and performing a hundred plus dates a year. All of these things can be great, but for a lot of people, they reach that destination and that's really exciting. It's awesome. And either they might discover, wow, this is not what I thought it was. This is not actually my dream. I've never asked myself what my dream is. I was just like borrowing someone else's or they get there. They do that. They do that for a while. Maybe they do that for like 10 years, 15 years. And they're sort of like feeling a little antsy and feeling like, I think there's more for me beyond just doing this for the rest of my life in this way. Like I love working with the clients who I support because they've already achieved an incredible level of success by many standards. And yet they feel like they have more to give. They have new frontiers of their creativity that they want to explore. And that's what we get to work on. Now I'm realizing that you may not have shared it, but I started listening to one of your clients' podcasts, uh-huh. Stand Partners for Life. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it was actually a story that he was telling. So uh-huh. th- that whole conversation around that, you know, you're going to be this orchestra musician, but okay, now I'm only playing like standard orchestra rap. Like, okay, it's like, how many times can you play New World Symphony? I mean, my daughter would kill me for saying that actually it's like her favorite piece of music. <laughs> But when you're just playing standard rep all the time, it can then start to feel not as creative and not leaving like what we talked about at the beginning of the hour that you're actually making a creative legacy. So what are some of the projects that people do want to work on that they would define as like a legacy project? Well, I mean, it's different for different people, but a lot of the most satisfying creative work that many of us would love to do does not make money or it doesn't make money right now, or it doesn't make enough money. For so many musicians who are requiring all of their money to come from a very limited list of activities, they get themselves in a situation where they don't have the time or energy or brain space to work on those really important creative projects that are not money-making right now. And to be honest, a lot of the folks that I talk to or that I work with They're realizing that their financial situation, even if it's stable and okay, it's actually not enough to support the life they want and the family that they have. And or they're realizing that they're working way too much. They're just drained and it could actually become a health hazard if they don't start working less. And yet they feel like I can't work less because how much I work now is tied to my income and I can't lower my income. So it's sort of this like challenging cycle where there isn't enough time and there isn't enough money to sort of reset everything. So a lot of times, the first step that I'm working on with a client is how do we restructure your life so that you can be making more money using your expertise, using skills that you feel like you have to offer as a gift to the world, but doing it in a way that's way more profitable than anything you've done before so that you can start to win back your time and start turning down the gigs that you wouldn't take anymore. Yeah. And even musicians at a very high level are taking on a lot of extra work that they wouldn't take on if they didn't really need to. 
Yeah. And just because we're speaking to a lot of my audience who may not be familiar with a musician life, that when you overwork as a musician, you are prone to repetitive use injuries. You get, I don't know if carpal tunnel is the proper word, but that's that. There's tendinitis. My daughter is even just in the conservatory level for the demands of her practice schedule. For that, she has suffered from pinched nerves and hand injuries. And this can sideline a musician. I mean, besides the fact that it, it's, it can be very painful, but then it can sideline you from what your core activity might be. If you're taking on too much, too many gigging, as you said, then you may not be able to perform in the orchestra or whatever it is that you're doing. It can completely sideline you. Absolutely. You're at higher risk for injury. Also, I mean, musicians spend so much time driving to gigs. Like you might spend eight hours a week in the car going to gigs that don't pay that much, but you're still counting on it. So, and then, you know, just on top of that, like being tired from performing all the time, from driving all the time. So many musicians I work with, their life is like this finely tuned watch where everything has to work perfectly and anything that throws them off. Like if you get sick or if you're running late, it's sort of like the whole puzzle starts to fall apart. That's such a high demanding, high stress situation to be in. And it's, it's really hard to be creative when you're there. So oftentimes when I work with someone, we are just like restructuring. And once they do that, then there's finally space for them to consider, okay, I have a bigger creative dream. And for some of them, some of my clients, they really see their part of their legacy as being an educator and creating a method, having their their educational ideas reach people around the world and not just a limited number of students who can study with them in person. So would an example of that, I'm just trying to pull from what my daughter's chats are, right? Okay, so for example, her professor, we'll give him a name, Professor Miai Title from the Heart Conservatory, took a sabbatical so he could play all the the proper etudes. Mm. Yeah, so would that be considered like a creative project for a legacy for leaving some sort of teaching pedagogy? What's the word for that? Pedagogy? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it totally could be, you know, working on something like that. What would be an example of something one of your clients has worked on? Yeah, like I have a client who's working on this performance project about uh, female pianists and composers throughout history. And so that's a recital with like like a live film, and she's going to turn that into the basis for a book as well. I have clients who want to do recording projects, you know, composers where they have like a big piece they want to write. It's sort of like my situation. I wanted to write a musical. And and then for some of them, it really is just like, I want to be home with my family. I have Mm -hmm. young kids and I want to be there for them. Yeah, it's a real mix of things, but so often they haven't had the time to really dream big. How have you been able to, and you can just use a specific example, like a case study, help them reorganize it so they can do it? Like what would be something, a blind spot maybe that they're not seeing that you usually go in there and help them fix? I mean, I do think that through teaching or coaching, that's the best way that musicians can make money because that is sort of an understood thing that people want. But I'm a huge advocate out of getting out of hourly pricing and restructuring to charge higher prices, sell packages, and not necessarily teach an hourly lesson every week. So a big part of what I've done with a handful of my clients, especially those who have a larger audience, have a bigger profile, like Nathan Cole, whose podcast you mentioned, Stand Partners for Life, is to create a group coaching program. And I think he currently has like 24 violinists in it. 
It's a six-month experience. There's a mix of pre-recorded content. He teaches group studio class, and then people get a private lesson, but only once a month. And the price point is a lot higher than an hourly lesson would be. But the overall result they get at the end of six months, I told him, was like, how can the result they get in six months be better than if they took six months of private lessons with you? What kind of people sign up to work with him? Are they like super adult, super fans of the orchestra who just think, oh, it would be so like, this is my bucket list. It'd be so cool to learn violin from this famous concert master. Is that? It's a real mix. You know, his approach is someone who like, he tends to attract people who like to get into sort of the nitty gritty of the mechanics of technique. So people who, you know, like to geek out a little bit around violin technique and not just use abstract metaphors. His students are a mix of really serious professionals in orchestras around the world who are still auditioning. And then I think he has some very advanced amateur players who have careers in all sorts of fields, but they've been very serious violinists their whole lives and just want to keep bettering themselves and improving. That's awesome. I just want to also point out that there are some some common principles that I share with my clients that I work with. So you mentioned not doing once off things. So that's mm-hmm. a big thing I work with my clients, whether they're teaching, not about offering this like one one session that it's always selling a package of sessions if you're if you're a teacher, but also trying to think in terms of multiples, even when you're creating your art, so that you want to offer a set of prints, or you think about a triptych, or you work in a collection so that it encourages your collectors to not just do a once-off purchase, but to really invest in something that's a little more meaningful. And then it basic example that I use all the time that I find too many artists, fine artists, painters do is they try to sell the single note card. I'm like, you are never going to make a living selling $5 note cards. Like, fine, package them up and offer five for 20. That's that's okay. You know, let somebody spend $20, not $5, but better yet, let them buy a print because a person who's just buying a single note card, most likely they're going home and they're framing it. So don't give them the $5 options. Mm -hmm. So it's similar, right, Jennifer? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's like so off. I mean, I don't know if you find this, you know, in the art world too, Miriam, but I think everyone has money issues, all of us. And I found in music, those are sort of compounded. There's a lot of beliefs around how we relate to money. A lot of the times when musicians think about what should I charge? How should I work? They're purely thinking about it from the place of what can this other person afford and not from the place of what do I need to live? and to feel good in my life? And how do I get my needs met? So, you know, when you talk about selling packages, we both know this as business owners, being able to predict our income and know how much money we're going to be making, not just this month, but like a few months down the line is really, really helpful. So a lot of it is like creating new financial practices that actually support someone to be a bit more comfortable and stable in their lives. Yeah, and I would take that even another step further. What I see artists and musicians doing is they think about what they would want to pay for something, which is the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So you're going to value it less because this is something that comes easy to you than somebody who doesn't have your skills. 
and wants to learn it. And we may value other things more, like you know, going to a concert. I don't know. But like, I was just thinking, you know, there's some people who will pay extra money for organic produce and other mm-hmm. people don't. So just because what you are willing to pay for that thing is not the right question to ask. And which is kind of different. I know you said, well, they think about what the other person can pay, but they're thinking it through their own lens rather than oh, 100%. like they're thinking what they would pay if they were the other person, not actually what the other person can pay or wants exactly. to pay or is willing to pay. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know about you, but I found just in general, whether it's art for sale, whether it's a class, the customer, the collector always values it more when they've paid more. Absolutely. I really believe that people value it more when they've paid more and when they are treated like a VIP yeah. in the purchase in the in the process of like buying something. I mean, we both know cuz we work we work with coaches, we've spent a lot of money working with coaches. We know what it's like to sort of invest in our development that way. And there's something that I really appreciate about working with a coach where they take me through the process of enrolling me or or you know, me deciding to purchase what they offer and it's a really powerful process and it might be a little scary for me, but it's it's kind of a life-changing experience to make that decision. It's not just, oh, like, how do you feel about paying me this? And so I think it's like how to empower musicians, artists in that sales conversation to realize this is a moment where we can treat someone who wants to work with us in a really amazing way, help them accomplish their goals. And the experience is worth money in addition to the deliverable. Yeah. And a lot of times now, whether we're talking about teaching, coaching, artwork, that the person on the other end of it, they're not making a decision about whether your art is worth it, whether your music lesson is worth it, whether your art class is worth it. They're really making a decision whether they feel they are worth investing in. And that's why what you said is so true that it's so powerful when we ourselves decide to invest in ourselves. It feels good to mm-hmm. say yes to yourself and invest in yourself. Absolutely. And, and especially if you feel like this is going to help me accomplish something I really want or be more of who I want to be. That's worth so much. It's amazing. Yeah. So I work with more people who maybe haven't completely taken on the professional role yet. And so once they decide to invest in me, it allows them to say, oh, wait a minute, I decide I'm getting coaching on a professional artist. Therefore, I am a professional artist. So it's like the transformation almost happens in the transaction. Mm -hmm. Of course, we both teach them all the things and all that. So it's not just about writing a check and magic happens, but there's so much that just happens once they say yes to themselves. Oh, you're totally right about that. Absolutely. Okay. So now I want to hear about your musical. So you had to basically take your own medicine and restructure your time so that you could work on this project. Am I right? Exactly. Yeah. So what did you change to make time for working on a musical? I realized I wanted to write musicals. I think when I was in high school, that was like all my always my dream. And then I didn't work on it for many, many years, at least 10 years. The dream was there, but I felt insecure about it. I had like some negative experiences with music teachers in college that kind of like shook my confidence. But it was, um, I think 2014, I sort of re-acknowledged that the dream was there. And over the course of a few years, I took some like very baby steps towards starting. I think it was in the summer of 2018 I realized, okay, I'm, I'm ready to make a bigger commitment to writing this musical because 
it just feels like a part of me is being denied by not working on it. But I also felt like the way that I was working at that time was not going to make it possible for me to write the musical the way that I wanted. Mm. I was still running my company, iCadenza. I was managing a team, not a huge team, but like a team. And I was working a lot. And I felt like, especially because I had a team in that business structure, I felt like I really needed to be clocking in at least a nine to five, you know, 40 hour work week kind of a situation. I realized I don't want to write this musical, you know, at night on the weekends and have to like squeeze it into my life because I had done that for the last few years and it's hard. Part of it was really just coming into clarity around what is the ideal life that I wanted. And I wasn't looking to totally not do it. Like I wasn't looking to spend 100% of my time on the musical, but I wanted the freedom to spend several hours during the week, during the day, writing it, you know, like before getting on this call with you, I was writing the musical on 1pm on a Thursday, you know, and to be able to do that guilt free, without feeling like anyone's waiting on me or that I should be doing other work is so amazing. So a lot of it started with just like clarifying what I wanted and admitting that to myself. I then decided to step down from running iCadenza. I'd, I'd been in the role for 10 years. I felt like it was time to let someone else step in. We appointed an amazing new CEO. Who went to the Heart School of Music. Who went to the Heart School of Music. Yes, Lisa Husseini. She's amazing and went to a great conservatory. Yes, we bonded over that because she, exactly. we, she gave me the same attitude that we described at the beginning. I said, my daughter plays cello and she's like, sure, she does. <laughs> I was like, no, actually. Like, she the Heart School. No, actually, right. <laughs> Legit. Right, exactly. legit. Then my daughter wrote down like a list of teachers. And I basically, I was like, you want me to ask her all this? So I just handed the survey over to Lisa. I said, just check off this thing that my daughter, <laughs> you know, wants me to ask you. You just fill it out. So she was a good sport about it. She just like told her all which teacher she had and all the things. So That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, I think Lisa was a flautist. Is that right? Do That's you know? right. Yeah. Yeah. Plays the flute. So. Mm-hmm. They were comparing notes about who they knew. It was kind of cute. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a very small, like, musical world in the end. Yeah, really I know, is. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about your musical. So where are you at with it now? I know you said you were working on it before the call, so I know it's not done. Not done. Mm-hmm. Not done. So tell us about it. It's a historical topic. It's based on a resistance movement in Nazi Germany called oh. the White Rose, Okay. which I learned about this when I was in college. It was a a group of student, of German students and a professor who wrote a series of leaflets protesting Hitler. And in the end, they were all executed. It does not have a happy ending. What really stuck with me about this story is that they all had such a close connection to music, to literature, to philosophy, to the arts, which in many ways were not super present in society at that time because a lot of that had been banned. And the policy was to not let people experience things that could open their minds. That was what informed their protest in a big way. So that really affirmed for me just how important the arts are, which has been a question that I I struggled with early on in my career of like, Am I doing something that's meaningful or is this just frivolous? Mm. So, so that's what the musical is about. And my goal for 2019 was to write a first draft, which I did. Good it was for so you. big. That's so yeah, awesome. it was amazing. 
Yeah. So I did a workshop in September, which was so cool to hear a reading of all the songs that I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm working on basically draft two or trying to have a more polished version. That's beautiful. And then you're going to go, What? what's the next step to try to get funding and the Fringe Festival yeah. or what, what's the next step? What's we'll that look see. like? I mean, I'd love to do another reading of it. I'm hoping, you know, either in the summer or the fall. And then I'll get more advice from people I know, get their input on the show and see where I should take it, whether it's pitching to theaters or producers or university theater programs. So we'll see. But the dream is to see it staged and hear it brought to life because that's the thing that we can't do on our own as writers, especially of a musical, you know. I love it. I can't wait. Do you have a working title for it? I'm sort of going between titles at the moment. So White Rose. Title is TB, like maybe, but maybe not. Yeah. And I'm sure the people who the producers might have something to say about that, or don't they? Do they? How much creative like input do producers have when you? I get- think it depends on the producer, but they, from what I hear, they do care about the title because yeah. that has marketing implications. Right. That's what. That's so, right. Yeah. I'm flexible on the title, in case any producers are listening. <laughs> You never know all the patron, the New York patrons who listen to the show. Mm-hmm. That's true. Not just New Yorkers. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's my mm-hmm. New Yorker perspective of the world. I think it all <laughs> happens here. Okay. <laughs> all right, Jennifer. So we are going to share a few things to wrap this up. So you have a, it's a free Facebook group. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Called yes. the Millionaire Musician. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I started this group to create a place to talk more openly about money among musicians, just because I found that it's such a taboo subject that makes people so uncomfortable. Yeah. And my idea with the group and calling it that is, I'm not saying every musician should be a millionaire or that needs to be the goal, but I want to take a stand for musicians owning what they want and whatever amount of money that they want, no matter how big it is. For me, a lot of it was this idea of if as a musician... If I knew that the impact I was having was so enormous that it would only be fitting to be compensated a million dollars, what would that look like? Interesting. So I really want to advocate for musicians to expand their vision of impact and what they're doing and allow that to correlate to their compensation. So that's what we talk about there. Okay, so Talia and friends, join her Facebook group. <laughs> Not just her friends. I'm assuming, Talia, you're sharing this with your professors. Okay, just saying. <laughs> All right. So also, if you want to work with Jennifer, jenniferrosenfeld.com, they can find out more about all the different ways they can work with you there. Is that right? Mm-hmm, yes. Okay, perfect. So we're going to li- put the links to both the Facebook group and her website in the show notes, which you'll be able to find at shulmanart.com forward slash 83. All right, Jen, do you have, can I call you Jen, by the way? I just found out that my, my sister-in-law, who I've been calling Jen for years, prefers Jennifer. I was like, well, it's a little late to tell me that. <laughs> yes, you may, you may call me Jen. Okay. Really cool. All right, fine. All right, Jen, do you have any last words for my listeners before we call this podcast complete? You know, I just, I so admire what you do, Miriam, and what you stand for. And for your listeners, anyone who is engaged with the arts, whether it's as a lover of the arts or a participant, a maker, whether it's music or painting or any kind of visual art, I just hope you know that this is so important. This is sort of what we are meant to do as humans. Art is the evidence that we were here and the way that we process what is happening around us. 
I think it's great when artists want to make money doing what they're doing. And I also think that just making art is a core part of what we do as humans. I love the work that you're doing, Miriam, and I love what you stand for in this podcast. Thank you. You said that so beautifully. I don't want to say anything else now. So I just want to thank you for being with me here today. I so appreciate your time. And thank you, listeners, for being with me here as well. I will see you the same time, same place next week. Make it a great one. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Inspiration Place podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash shulmanart, on Instagram at shulmanart, and of course, on shulmanart.com. If you liked this episode, then you have to check out the Artist Incubator. It's my small group program for emerging artists who want to make more money from their art. The program is by application only. To apply, go to shulmanart.com forward slash biz. That's biz as in B-I-Z. If you qualify for a free strategy session, you'll get my eyes on your art business absolutely free. And we'll discuss the steps you need to take to make 2020 your best year ever.